Chapter 1 of J.B. Bury's The Student's Roman Empire, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Student's Roman Empire, Part 1, by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter 1, From the Battle of Actium to the Foundation of the Principate. Gaius Julius Caesar, the triumvir and the founder of the Roman Empire, was the grand-nephew of Gaius Julius Caesar, the dictator, his adoptive father. Originally named, like his true father, Gaius Octavius, he entered the Julian family after the dictator's death, and, according to the usual practice of adopted sons, called himself Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus. But the name Octavianus soon fell into disuse, and by his contemporaries he was commonly spoken of as Caesar just as Scipio Aemilianus was commonly called Scipio. The victory of Actium, September 2nd, 31 B.C., and the death of Marcus Antonius, August 1st, 30 B.C., placed the supreme power in the hands of Caesar, for so we may best call him until he becomes Augustus. The Roman world lay at his feet, and he had no rival. He was not a man of genius, and his success had perhaps been chiefly due to his imperturbable self-control. He was no general, he was hardly a soldier, though not devoid of personal courage, as he had shown in his campaign in Illyricum. As a statesman he was able, but not creative or original, and he would never have succeeded in forming a permanent constitution but for the example of the great dictator. In temper he was cool, without ardor or enthusiasm. His mind was logical, and he aimed at precision in thought and expression. His culture was wide, if superficial. His knowledge of Greek, imperfect. In literary style, he affected simplicity and correctness, and he was an astute critic. Like many educated men of his time, he was not free from superstition. His habits were always simple, his food plain, and his surroundings modest. His family affections were strong, and sometimes misled him into weakness. His presence was imposing, though he was not tall, and his features were marked by symmetrical beauty, but the pallor of his complexion showed that his health was naturally delicate. It was due to his self-control and his simple manner of life that he lived to be an old man. The successes of Caesar had not been achieved without the aid of others. Two remarkable men, devoted to his interests, stood by him faithfully throughout the civil wars, and helped him by their counsels and their labors. These were Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa and Gaius Kilnius Mycenaeus. As they helped him not only to win the empire, but also to wield it after he had won it, it is necessary to know what manner of men they were. Of Agrippa we know strangely little, considering the prominent position he occupied for a long and important period, and the part he played in the history of the world. From youth up he had been the companion of Caesar, and he was always content to take second place. His military ability stood Caesar in good stead, notably in the war with Sextus Pompeius and on the day of Actium. He had first distinguished himself at the siege of Perugia, 41 BC, and subsequently his victories over the Germans beyond the Rhine established his military fame. His success was due to his own energy, for he had no interest, and belonging to an obscure gens, he was regarded by the nobility as an upstart. He was not, perhaps, a man of culture, but his tastes were liberal. 
His interest in architecture was signalized by many useful buildings, and Gaul owed him a great debt for the roads which he constructed in that country. In appearance he is said to have been stern and rugged. In temper he was reserved and proud. He was ambitious, but only for the second place. Yet he was the one man who might have been a successful rival of his master. Mycenaeus resembled Agrippa in his unselfish loyalty to Caesar, but his character was very different. Like Agrippa, he did not aspire to become the peer of their common master. But while the heart of Agrippa was set on being acknowledged as second, Mycenaeus preferred to have no recognized position. Agrippa's excellence was in the craft of war, while Mycenaeus cultivated the arts of peace. Agrippa had forwarded the cause of Caesar by his generalship. Mycenaeus aided him by diplomacy. It will be remembered how the latter negotiated the treaties of Brandusium and Mycenaeum. During the campaigns which demanded the presence of Caesar, Mycenaeus conducted the administration of affairs in Italy and watched over the interests of the absent triumvir. Until his death, 8 BC, he continued to be the trusted friend and advisor, in fact the alter ego of Caesar, and he had probably no small share in making the constitution of the empire. But he always kept himself in the background. He was content with the real power which he enjoyed by his immense influence with Caesar. He despised offices and honors. It is characteristic of the man that he refused to pass from the equestrian into the senatorial order. He could indeed afford to look down upon many of the nobles, for he came of an illustrious Etruscan race. In his tastes and manner of life, he was unlike both Agrippa and Caesar. He was neither rough nor simple. A refined voluptuary, he made an art of luxury, and it was quite consistent that ambition should have no place in his theory of life. When affairs called for energy and zeal, no one was more energetic and unresting than Mycenaeus. But in hours of ease, he almost went beyond the effeminacy of a woman. Saturated with the best culture of his day, he took an enlightened interest in literature. Of the circle of men of letters, which he formed around himself, there will be an occasion to speak in a future chapter. Such were the men who helped Caesar to win the first place in the state, and who, when he had become the ruler of the world, devoted themselves to his service without rivalry or jealousy. Agrippa became consul for the second time in 28 BC with the triumvir for his colleague, and his friendship with Caesar was soon cemented by a new tie. He married Marcella, the daughter of Octavia, Caesar's sister, by her first husband, Gaius Marcellus. The Battle of Actium decided between Antonius and Caesar, but it also decided a still greater question. It decided between the East and the West. For the Roman world had been seriously threatened by the danger of Oriental despotism. The policy of Antonius in the East, his connection with Cleopatra, the idea of making Alexandria a second Rome, show that if things had turned out otherwise at Actium, Egypt would have obtained an undue preponderance in the Roman state, and the empire might have been founded in the form of an Eastern monarchy. Caesar recognized the significance of Egypt and took measures to prevent future danger from that quarter. It was, of course, out of the question to allow the dynasty of Greek kings to continue. But instead of forming a new province, Caesar treated the land as if he were, by the right of conquest, the successor of Cleopatra, and of Ptolemy Caesarion, whom he had put to death. 
He did not, indeed, assume the title of king, but he appointed a prefect who was responsible to himself alone and was in every sense a viceroy. And as the lord of the country, he enacted that no Roman senator should visit it without his special permission. The first prefect of Egypt was Gaius Cornelius Gallus, with whose help Caesar had captured Alexandria. The inhabitants of Egypt were disbarred from the prospect of becoming Roman citizens, and no local government was granted to the cities. The treasuries of Cleopatra enabled Caesar to discharge many pressing obligations. He was able to pay back the loans which he had incurred in the civil wars. He was able also to give large donatives to the soldiers and populace of Rome. The abundance of money, which the conquest of Egypt suddenly poured upon Western Europe, helped in no small measure to establish a new period of prosperity. After many dreary years of domestic war and financial difficulties, men now saw a prospect of peace and plenty. But above all, the booty of Egypt enabled Caesar to satisfy the demands of 120,000 veterans. Immediately after Actium, he had discharged all the soldiers who had served their time, but without giving them the rewards which they had been led to expect. These veterans belonged both to Caesar's own army and to that of Antonius, which had capitulated. Seeing that they would be of little importance after the conclusion of the civil wars, they made a stand as soon as they reached Italy, and demanded that their claims should be instantly satisfied. Agrippa, who had returned with the troops, and Mycenaeus, to whom Caesar had entrusted the administration of Italy, were unable to pacify the soldiers, and it was found necessary to send for Caesar himself, who was wintering in Samos. The voyage was dangerous at that time of year, but Caesar, after experiencing two severe storms, in which some of his ships were lost, reached Brindusium safely. He succeeded in satisfying the veterans, some with grants of land, others with money. But his funds were quite insufficient to meet the claims of all, and he had to put off many with promises. He thus gained time until the immense Egyptian booty gave him means to fulfill his obligations. The greater number of veterans were of Italian origin and wished to receive land in their native country. As most of the Italians had supported the cause of Caesar, it was impossible to do on a large scale what had been done ten years before and eject proprietors to make room for the soldiers. But the veterans of Antonius, who had on that occasion been settled in the districts of Ravenna, Bononia, Capua, etc., and sympathized with his cause, were now forcibly turned out of the holdings which they had forcibly acquired. They were, however, unlike the original proprietors, compensated by assignments of land in the provinces, especially in the east, where the civil war had depopulated many districts. But the land thus made available was not nearly enough, and Caesar was obliged to purchase the rest. In B.C. 30 and B.C. 14, he spent no less than 600 million sesterces, about 5 million pounds, in buying Italian farms for his veterans. We find traces of these settlements in various parts of Italy, especially in the neighborhood of Ateste, or Este. After the conquest of Egypt, the Antonian troops were transferred to the south of Gaul and settled there in colonies possessing Ius Latinum, for example, in Nemausus, or Nîmes. The wholesale discharge of veterans, as well as the losses sustained in the wars, rendered a reorganization of the legions necessary. 
The plan was adopted of uniting those legions which had been greatly reduced in number with others which had been similarly diminished, and thus forming new double legions, as they were called by the distinguishing title of Gemina. Thus were formed the 13th Gemina, the 14th Gemina, etc. The greater part of the year following the death of Cleopatra, August B.C. 30, was occupied by Caesar in ordering the affairs of the Asiatic provinces and dependent kingdoms. Herod of Judea was rewarded for his valuable services by an extension of his territory, and several changes were made in regard to the petty principalities of Asia Minor. There was probably some expectation at Rome that Caesar, in the flush of his success, would attempt to try conclusions with the Parthian Empire and retrieve the defeat of Carrhae before he returned to Italy. Virgil addresses him at this time in high-flown language, as if he were the arbiter of peace and war in Asia, as far as the Indies. But Caesar deferred the settlement of the Parthian question. In the summer of 29 BC, he returned to Italy, where he was greeted by the Senate and the people with an enthusiasm which was certainly not feigned. There was a great feeling of relief at the end of the civil wars, and men heartily welcomed Caesar as a deliverer and restorer of peace. The only note of opposition had come from a son of Marcus Aemilianus Lepidus, the triumvir. The father lived in peaceful retirement at Cercei, but the son was rash and ambitious and formed the plan of murdering Caesar on his return. He did not take his father into the secret, but his mother, Junia, a sister of Brutus, was privy to it. Mycenaeus discovered the conspiracy in good time and promptly arrested Junia and her son. Young Lepidus was immediately dispatched to Caesar in the east, and was there executed. But this incident was of little consequence. Caesar's position was perfectly safe. The honors which were paid to him would have been accorded with an equal show of enthusiasm to Antonius, if fortune had declared herself for him, but there is little doubt that Caesar was more acceptable. The Senate decreed that his birthday should be included among the public holidays, and it was afterwards regularly celebrated by races. His name was mentioned along with the gods in the Carmen Salieri, and it is probable that, had he really wished it, divine honors would have been decreed to him in Rome, such as were paid to him in Egypt, where he stepped into the place of the Ptolemies, and in Asia Minor, where he assumed the privileges of the Attalids. But though he had become a god in the East, Caesar wished to remain a man in Rome. He already possessed the tribunician power for life, but it was now granted again in an extended form. It was also decreed that every fourth anniversary of his victory should be commemorated by games, the Ludi Actiaci, and that the rostra and trophies of the captured ships should adorn the temple of the divine Julius. Triumphal arches were to be erected in the Roman Forum and at Brundusium to celebrate the victor's return to Italy, and a sacrifice of thanksgiving was offered to the gods by the Senate and the people, and by every private person. The triumph of Caesar lasted three days, August 13th, 14th, and 15th. The soldiers who had been disbanded returned to their standards in order to take part in it, and all the troops which shared in his victories were concentrated close to Rome. Each soldier received a thousand sesterces, about eight pounds, as a triumphal gift, and the Roman populace also received four hundred sesterces a head. The triumph represented victories over the three known continents, 
The first days were devoted to the celebration of conquests in Europe, the subjugation of Pannonia and Dalmatia, and some successes won in Gaul over rebellious tribes by Gaius Carinus during Caesar's absence in the east. The triumph for Actium, which took place on the second day, represented a victory over the forces of Asia. The trophies were far more splendid than those won from the poor princes of Illyricum. The poet Propertius describes how he saw the necks of kings bound with golden chains, and the fleet of Actium sailing up the Via Sacra. Among the kings were Alexander of Emesa, whom Caesar had deposed after the battle, and Adiatorix, a Galatian prince, who before the battle had massacred all the Romans he could lay hands on. Both these captives were executed after the triumph. But the third day, which saw the triumph over Africa, was the most brilliant. Cleopatra had, by destroying herself, avoided the shame of adorning her conqueror's triumphal car, but a statue of her was carried in her stead, and her two young children, Alexander and Cleopatra, represented the fallen house of Egyptian royalty. Images of the Nile and Egypt were also carried in the triumphal procession, and the richest spoils, with quantities of gold and silver coins, were exhibited to the gaze of the people. The result of the great influx of money into Italy was that the rate of interest fell from 12 to 4 percent. In one respect, the order of Caesar's triumph departed from the traditional custom. His fellow consul, Marcus Valerius Messala Petitus, and the other senators who took part in the triumph, instead of heading the procession and guiding the triumphator into the city, according to usage, were placed last of all. This innovation was significant of the coming monarchy. On this occasion, the buildings which Julius Caesar had designed and begun, and which had been completed since his death, were dedicated, and his own temple was consecrated by his son with special solemnity. The game of Troy was represented in the Circus Maximus by boys of noble family, divided into two parties, one of which was commanded by Caesar's stepson, Tiberius Nero, the future emperor. A statue of victory was set up in the Senate House. The occasion was further celebrated by games and gladiatorial combats, in which a Roman senator did not disdain to take part. But these festivities were less significant for the inauguration of a new period than the solemn closing of the Temple of Janus, which had been ordained by the Senate probably early in the same year, January 11th. The ceremonies instituted for such an occasion by King Numa had not been witnessed for more than 200 years. For the last occasion on which the gates of Janus had been shut was at the conclusion of the First Punic War. Strictly speaking, peace was not yet established in every corner of the Roman realm. There were hostilities still going on against mountain tribes in northern Spain and on the German frontier, but these were small matters, mere child's play, which shrank to complete insignificance by the side of the civil war which had been distracting the Roman world for the last twenty years. Peace, the famous Pax Romana, had in every sense come at length, and it was fitting that the doors of war should be closed at the beginning of an empire, of which the saying that empire is peace was preeminently true. The powers which Caesar possessed as a triumvir were unconstitutional, and were by their nature intended to be only temporary. Besides the ordinary imperium domi of a consul and extraordinary imperium militi in the provinces, the triumvir had the power of making laws and appointing magistrates, which constitutionally belonged to the Comitia of the people. 
when peace was restored to the world, it might be expected that Caesar would at once restore to the people the functions which had been made over to him for a time. It was quite out of the question to restore the state of things which had existed before the elevation of Caesar the dictator. The rule of the Senate had been proved to be corrupt and incompetent, and annual magistrates were powerless in the face of a body whose members held their seats for life. The only way out of the difficulty was to place the reins of government in the hands of one man. This had been done directly in the case of Caesar the father, and it had been the indirect result of the triumvirate in the case of Caesar the son. But the latter resolved to establish his supremacy on a constitutional basis and harmonize his sovereignty with republican institutions. A dictatorship could be created only to meet some special crisis, and a triumvir to constitute the state was clearly absurd when the state had once been constituted. Neither the office of a dictator nor the powers of the triumvirate were theoretically suitable to form the foundation of a permanent government, and the logically-minded Caesar was not likely to leave the constitutional shape of his rule undefined or to be content with an inconsistent theory. He did not, however, at once lay down the triumphal powers which had been conferred on him by the Lex Titia in 43 B.C. For a year and a half after his triumph, he seems to have remained a triumvir, or at least in possession of the powers which belonged to him as triumvir. But it is not clear how far during that time he made use of those unconstitutional rights. He was consul for the fifth time in 29 B.C. and again in 28 B.C., and it is probable that he acted during these years by his rights as consul, as far as possible, and not by his rights as triumvir. There was, however, much to be done in Rome and in Italy that might truly come under the name of constituting the state. Two of the most important measures carried out in these years were the increase of the patriciate and the reform of the Senate. In 30 B.C., a law, Lexania, was passed enabling Caesar to replenish the exhausted patrician class by the admission of new families, and he carried out this measure in the following year. In 28 B.C., he exercised the functions of the censorship in conjunction with Agrippa, who was his colleague in the consulship. They not only held a census, but performed a purgation of the Senate and introduced some reforms in its constitution. Caesar also caused all the measures which had been taken during the civil wars to be repealed, but the compass and the effect of this act are not quite clear. 28 B.C. In the same year, he marked his intention to return to the constitutional forms of the Republic by changing the consular fasces, according to custom, with his colleague Agrippa, and thus acknowledging his fellow consul to be his equal. He also began to restore the administration of the provinces to the Senate. In 27 BC, Caesar assumed the consulate for the seventh time, and Agrippa was again his colleague. It seems that he had already partly divested himself of his extraordinary powers, but the time had at length come to lay them down altogether, though only to receive equivalent power again in a different and more constitutional form. On January 13th, he resigned in the Senate his office as triumvir and his proconsular imperium, and for a moment the statement of a contemporary writer was literally true, that the ancient form of the Republic was recalled. And thus Caesar could be described on his coins as vindicator of the liberty of the Roman people, libertatis 
Populus Romanus Windex. In the next chapter, we shall see in what shape Caesar and his counselors, while they nominally restored the Republic, really inaugurated an empire, which was destined to last well nigh 1,500 years. End of chapter 1